I'm Anya Katz, and you're listening to A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World. I started this podcast because I was tired of being stereotyped as lazy, triggered, and entitled. I wanted to give voice to a different kind of millennial and invite us to write a new story. One of a generation willing to challenge the status quo, embrace nuance and paradox, and reject PC culture. This podcast isn't about finding answers. It's about asking the right questions. How can we reinvent ourselves and the narratives we've been expected to inherit? How can we take ownership over the ways we participate in our own suffering? How can we move beyond victimization and into empowerment? How can we fix ourselves to fix the world? It's time for new dreams, new stories, and new futures. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the show. This intro coming to you live right next to a fire. It is snowy and beautiful outside, and I lit a fire first thing when I woke up and put all the blankets in front of it and uh, decided I was going to work here for the day. So far, it's going pretty well. Um, I sort of had an idea of how much I missed winter when I moved to California a decade ago or so. But uh, actually experiencing the snow and the change of seasons and the weather is just, yeah, makes me very, very happy to see the cycles and the shifts move in the way that they do. Um, This episode today, I wanted to bring you all much sooner than today. Um, It's been really hard to do much of anything the past couple weeks especially the past week. I have, I honestly have not felt or had not felt the level of anxiety and inertia that I felt during the whole election. Um, it's been a lot and, uh, very much in line with today's episode and very much in line with what I talk about on this podcast and the way that I've chosen to live my life as of late is that I listen to my body and I listen to my nervous system and I hear the inner dialogue in my head of the fact that people are going to stop listening because my podcast episodes aren't consistent or I'm being lazy or whatever the damning um, story is in my head that tells me that I need to be doing something differently than what I feel. I do my best to acknowledge it, see it um, for what it is, but tune into my body and decide, is it worth forcing this or not? And um, yeah, given the level of anxiety over the past couple of weeks, uh, the answer to that question was no, do not force it. Um, I was also struggling a bit with this podcast was recorded probably almost two months ago at this point in uh, Big Sky, Montana, when we were still on the road. Um, you know, obviously a lot of what was going in in the world then is relevant to now, uh, but I felt sort of badly about bringing you an episode of the podcast that was recorded prior to this sort of monumental moment in history that maybe it wouldn't feel relevant. Of course, in listening back to it this morning, though, um, I can't really imagine a more relevant podcast, not just for this time, but especially for my patrons who many of whom just finished reading Belonging with me. There was a lot of talk about um, mother archetypes in that book. And uh, hopefully, or not hopefully, I'm pretty sure that this episode um, will feel relevant. And and, uh, 
I, I feel confident in that too, in the sense of listening to my body in not pushing something to go out sooner than what feels right. And just knowing that the moment it does go out will be the right moment and, uh, to trust the timing on that. So uh, a few brief notes before we get into today's episode with Kimberly, um, Patreon. If you would like to support the podcast, you can head on over to patreon.com slash Anya Kotz. There's so many cool things happening on Patreon right now in the community that we're, we've all created together within that space. Um, basically if you're unfamiliar, Patreon, Patreon is a site that you can go to, to support people who are doing things that you find valuable, but, um, oftentimes they're artists or podcasters or, you know, musicians, um, careers that are very difficult to make money in without some sort of patronage. So sort of recreating that older model, you can go onto Patreon and support artists and creatives that you find are creating beautiful, valuable content that you want to support and help keep going. Um, so all in all, if you find this podcast valuable, these guests valuable, the information valuable, that's a great way to sort of vote with your dollar in a sense and uh, put all of our sort of collective time and energy and money into things that are uh, making the world a better place. And certainly if that's not my podcast, <laughs> do that somewhere that feels authentic and aligned for you. Um, but if you sign up to support the podcast, and not only are you just supporting the podcast in and of itself, but there is a community there that I've really worked, especially over the past year or so, to cultivate more um, so when you sign up at certain levels, there's different perks, one of which is a WhatsApp, exclusive WhatsApp group chats. We have three of them now. The third group is still accepting members. So if you would like to communicate directly with me and other listeners of the show, um, Patreon is the place to do that. And, uh, yeah, I'm going to keep creating groups of about 20 to 30 people. So, um, that's sort of unlimited for anyone that would like to sign up. Within the next couple of days, I'm also going to create a a sort of like overarching contact list kind of a thing so that people within the different WhatsApp groups or even patrons that are not a part of the WhatsApp group can connect with each other, whether that's by way of location or interest. Um, so I'm going to be putting that together. That's going to be available to certain patrons. I post playlists, uh, book reviews. There's an official Millennials Guide book list, which is a compilation of all of the books that any of my guests who have been on the show have recommended. So that's all in one place for you. And then also maybe the perk that I am the most excited about right now is the book club that we've been doing. Uh, so we've read two books so far. We did one in August. We just did one in October. We read Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. Um, and then this past month, we read Belonging by Toko Pa Turner. Basically, we take a month to read a book and then we meet live via Zoom to talk about it and anything else that's on our minds. Um, in the future, I think I'm going to be offering two different times to meet via Zoom. I do record the calls, except for one time, this past book club, where I forgot to record the first Zoom call. It was the night before the election, and I was uh, a serious, stressed-out space cadet. Um, but I recorded the second one, and in the future, I plan to record all of them, but also offer two different times for patrons to participate in those calls so more people can join us live. And it's just proven to be such a valuable, I think, resource for patrons, listeners, and for myself. Um, I walk away from those calls every time connecting with all of these people and just feeling so lucky and um, 
privilege to be able to share this space with so many like-minded people who are usually really hard to find. Um, but you all are my people and you're each other's people. So, uh, yeah, I just feel so refreshed every time that we all come together. So more of that for sure. I am also just about ready to sort of announce the, I'm going to do the book club uh, this winter a little bit differently. It's a big, thick book. <laughs> I'll just announce it here. We're going to read Cosmos and Psyche by Rick Tarnas, um, which is massive and dense and sort of the scientific component to looking at the world in an astrological perspective. So really aligning astrology with science and data and tracking planets transits throughout history. Um, I've heard Rick Tarnas speak several times uh, in person and on different podcasts, and I am really excited to dive into this book, especially doing so with this community. Um, but it is dense and it is bulky, and I don't want myself or anyone to rush through it. And the winter seemed like a time to slow down and really absorb things in depth. So I think I'm going to have this book club last throughout January. So I'll have the rest of November, December, and January to read it. I'm thinking about maybe doing a meetup on Zoom in the middle so we can sort of discuss halfway through. This is basically just like the liberal arts college of my dreams where we get to read all of the books that I want to read and uh, discuss them with a small group of people, which was not that different than my actual education, um, but an education that I really, really loved and valued. I went to a college, Sarah Lawrence, that was really unique in the way that they taught. So it was basically a lot of reading and talking and writing about books. Um, so carrying that on into my future, because I do not plan to formally attend school ever again. Um, anyway, so more info on that to come. Um, I'm going to stop talking about all of this now, but if you want more information, patreon.com slash Anya Kotz is where you can find it. Um, of course, if you find the podcast valuable, I want to participate in some way, but don't have the money to spend or the time to spend um, digging into the Patreon community. You can always leave a review on iTunes. Just go on iTunes, scroll down past all the episodes, leave some stars, um, which is really easy. And then a review it can even be like a word or two. It doesn't matter. And you can also hit subscribe at the top of the page. All of those things help the podcast look more legitimate to future podcast guests and also helps the podcast show up more on search results. So all of it's appreciated. Just you listening, sharing the episodes with your friends is, uh, yeah, amazing on levels. I find it hard to elaborate about. It's fucking awesome. Um, <clears throat> mostly, I want you to hear this conversation today, so I'm not going to waste too much more of your time. Um, I have been thinking about the nervous system a lot, which is a big part of today's podcast and uh, certainly a big part of why I didn't release this podcast sooner and why I don't... Um, I choose not to prioritize my thoughts over my body most of the time when I can, when it works. Um, but it was also kind of interesting. I feel like definitely the past week during the sort of climax and height of the election, I couldn't do anything. But prior to that, even though I wasn't really capable of getting behind a mic and recording an intro or posting a podcast, I do feel super, super, super productive. Um, which is probably partially in relation to uh, Mars being retrograde and um, me having a very prominent Mars in my chart, prominent Aries in my chart. Um, anyway, I digress. Um, I was feeling really productive and it reminded me of something that I brought up or that one of my guests brought up, rather a friend of mine 
uh, Justin. He was on the podcast, I believe it was episode 59, um, but we talked about something and I actually posted this on my website. So if you go to anyacots.com and go to the podcast section where you see a list of all the podcasts, either scroll down to episode 59 or just type in Justin and you'll find it. I posted something called the feelings wheel that he talked about, um, which is really interesting and sort of hard to describe if you're not looking at it, but basically it helps in a myriad of ways, one in defining emotions and feelings, um, but also putting them in relationship to one another. So let's say you're feeling one thing like rage. There is something in the opposite side of the chart that is sort of the 180, uh, the 180 opposite to whatever that feeling is. So like moving into that feeling in order to reduce rage, um, and then there's also something that's really interesting, which are feelings that appear next to each other. So they're in different categories, um, but they appear next to each other on the wheel, like they're at the end of each of the categories. And one of the ones that really uh, stood out to me was the fact that anxiety and excitement are right next to each other. Um, and that's because in the body, anxiety and excitement register in a very similar way. It's a very sort of, in my experience, manic um, a uh, sort of hyper-vigilant, hyper-ventilating kind of a feeling. Um, and it was it was interesting this past week or past couple of weeks when I felt really anxious and finding it, finding it kind of hard to breathe and kind of hard to relax to see how I could sort of just sidestep slightly and turn that anxiety into this sort of creativity. Um, and sometimes it was too difficult, but sometimes it definitely worked. It felt a little bit like I was on Coke. I've never done Coke, to be fair, um, but not in an unhealthy way, in a way that I was like pushing myself too hard or overextending myself, but in periods of time where I did need to get something done and I felt this sort of energy, um, it was interesting to kind of move that bodily uh, feeling from anxiety into excitement for something and... Um, yeah, that was kind of cool. It was it was a very overwhelming, intense week, but there are so many cool things coming up, uh, not just related to this podcast that I'm excited to share with you, but Horror Rapport, my other podcast as well that I host with my friend Erin. We have conversations about sexuality. Um, it goes far beyond sexuality, honestly, but that's sort of the baseline Every week uh, or every episode that we release, we pick a topic such as cheating or desire, sexual friendships, or non-monogamy. Um, we just recorded several, one on unrequited love. Um, lots of those are coming up. Uh, we're also going to be on uh, Chris Ryan's podcast, Tangentially Speaking, so that was really cool and exciting and sort of the first time that we've had a horror rapport-esque conversation with another person since that podcast doesn't have any guests. Um, and it was really nice. It was nice to have a third perspective, a male perspective. Um, so hopefully more of that coming up in the future. If you would like to check that out, it is available on all the podcast apps, horror rapport, R-A-P-P-O-R-T. The very last thing I will mention before we get into this episode is that one of my listeners, Justin, created a, a subreddit for the podcast. It's uh, just backslash millennials guide. So go check that out. Um, lots of different ways to connect with people there, chat about the episodes or anything else that you think might be relevant. Um, I will leave you with that today. I am going to play you in with a song called Nectar Drop by DJ Drez. I believe that's how you say it. This was one of those 
fun songs that appeared on my like discover weekly Spotify list. Those are kind of normally a dud for me, but sometimes there's a gem or two. And this one definitely was, um, talk about like just aligning with my nervous system. I mean, I do this with songs all the time where I hear a song that I like and I cannot listen to any other song for days. Like I just play that song over and over and over and over again until it like poisons my soul. Um, or hopefully just like below poisons my soul that it can be a presence in my life in the future. Uh, but this one was definitely one of those and was on repeat nonstop for me. It just felt like where I wanted to be in a embodied both embodied and mental state really um it definitely dipped me into that and uh yeah don't ever feel bad I mean listening to a song is obviously not super taboo or anything but don't feel bad about whatever it is that you need to do to feel comfortable um I have taken so many goddamn baths over the past couple weeks I take a bath almost every day to be honest um when I am in a house with a bathtub um but anyway it's it's fine like all of it's fine. Whatever you know intuitively is good for you is good for you. And I know that sometimes it's hard to tune into what that is or trust that voice, uh, but keep working toward it. If you hear even a slight little whisper of like, go take a goddamn bath, put some bath salts in it and listen to a nice song, do it and see how you feel. Do you feel better afterwards or do you feel worse? It's a good little test to see how you can learn to trust yourself. Enjoy this song, everybody. Enjoy this episode, and I will catch you on the other end.
Kimberly, and I am really excited to have, I think, a bunch of conversations uh, that I've only sort of mentioned on the podcast prior, um, specifically about motherhood and the nervous system. Um, I'm really grateful to have you sort of carry those torches because I really respect the way that you um, look at these things and the work that you do. Uh, so hopefully we can fit as much of we as we get into a short period of time. Um, but before we get started, you do lots of different things, uh, and the work you do, I feel like has, is, is broad in a sense. So I'd love in your own words to hear you talk about, um, who you are and the work that you do, but also how you got here and how you discovered it and why you feel so passionate about it. Well, I'm primarily a teacher. I teach people about how to live in their bodies and how to become more human and uh, essentially how to love better. And I've done that in a lot of different ways over the past 25 years. I am, I was a yoga teacher for a long time. I am a body worker, a rolfer, which is a kind of structural body work that works with fascia. And I'm a somatic experiencing trauma uh, resolution practitioner, as well as a sexological body worker. So uh, I've worked in lots of different facets of the healing process. But most recently, I worked with a lot of women, helping them heal from birth trauma and sexual trauma. And, and also on the flip side of that, preparing women um, for birth so as not to experience trauma and help uh, all different kinds of people have a real world understanding of their sexuality and communication so that we're also not just dealing with the flip side of what happens when things don't go well, but helping people um, have positive res- reparative experiences. And uh, so, yeah, my latest book is a compilation of what I learned, which is when I was helping women recover from these traumas, which are usually medical trauma, gynecological trauma, or relational, sexual, that I assumed that they would like to be in a predator position. So if we were going to play wolf and rabbit, I assumed that they would want to be the wolf because they were coming to me as a rabbit. Their bodies were behaving like rabbits. They were, um, in many cases, in sort of submissive posture, um, very covered, talking quietly, especially if we were talking about what the material they came to work with. So when I suggested to them to be the wolf, oftentimes that would send them even farther down the rabbit spiral. And I was really surprised by that. But over time, what I realized was that if I could teach them to be a wolf, then I could teach their system how to repair itself and to not have the same situations trigger the same responses Mm -hmm. in them. So I went down a long path of both helping like 800 women, I think something like that. And in a kind of short period of time, uh, establish the full spectrum of predator and prey in their nervous system. And then when the me too movement happens, I realized, okay, I can't just keep doing this one-on-one because almost every woman and man that I knew were telling me their stories and were, re-wondering about what they had experienced, having memories surface on both sides of things. Maybe I actually transgressed boundaries 
was that a transgression? Oh, maybe I had my boundaries transgressed. Maybe I thought I had my boundaries transgressed, but looking back, I actually didn't do what I thought that I did. And so I got really dedicated to helping every person understand in their own system where they are in a cascade of nervous system responses. Because if you're in a sexual situation, well, actually any situation, and you go into a freeze response where it's hard for you to talk or hard for you to move or hard for you to respond, we can't always expect that another person will be able to interpret that for us. And so I help people come into language for themselves and understand where they are in the cascade of nervous system responses. And can you talk a little bit about um, how you define trauma or see trauma? I feel like I've experienced a lot of people, especially my age, who feel like they're privileged or had it like better than their mother did or their grandmother. And I feel like there's a huge hesitation to use that word in general, but especially associate it with experiences that we've had. Um, I'm wondering if you've come across that at all and just like how you define trauma for yourself and the people that you work with. That's interesting that you're relating privilege to trauma and that somebody would have a narrative to themselves like well because I'm privileged or because I'm in a relatively better situation than someone else then I don't really have permission to have my full experience I think we're really at that crossroads right now a lot of my friends who are therapists during the Black Lives Matter movement and working with non-black clients a lot of their work was basically just trying to hold space and validate that you can still have a hard time and be in a relatively better position than someone else. So trauma itself uh, is nothing in and of itself is traumatic. It's not an event. It's how each individual system processes that event. So I would say there's like a little t trauma, which are like the daily things that are incomplete cycles. And that could be like the other day I had my mask on and it was like, I had it pulled up too high, so it was touching my bottom eyelashes. And I I was in a rush, and I fell and tripped. And I was on my way into a class that I was taking, and the day before I had missed the class, so I had to pay for it anyway. So I had an extra incentive that I was like, I don't want to miss another class. Uh, But, you know, I cut my chin, I cut my knee, I was, like, bleeding, and I was in a Pilates studio where everyone's, like, you know, popsicled and, like, (laughs) You know, it was like too much for that environment. And had I not had, had my mind not been um, telling me at the time, I wasn't even noticing that's what was happening, but it was saying like, just figure this out and like, don't miss another class and, you know, just go ahead. If I was listening to my body, I would have just noticed, okay, this is just, I'm making myself go too fast right now. I need to just rest for a moment. I need to take stock of this whole situation I need to take care of my foot and I can't do it in the pace that everyone in this class needs me to do it. So instead I just kept going and you know, there was no grand repercussion for that other than later in the day, I could tell there was a lot of undischarged emotion that I had and my lower leg was, um, not correctly aligned because I had done a bunch of stuff with it when it was in that liminal state where it's very impressionable because it was a plastic state while I was still recovering 
so that's like a baby trauma because, you know, and I know how to be with it later on. Or just a bad conversation can be like a little trauma. You didn't say the thing you wanted to say, and then you just keep repeating it later in the day. We usually think of trauma as like a car accident or a death or, um, and all of these have separate categories, right? Like a car accident is an inescapable attack. Um, um, surgery trauma where an anesthesia is an incomplete cycle because your body and your neurology are on separate tracks. So your mind isn't remembering the pain, but your body is remembering the pain. Um, and it's a, an anesthesia is a forced freeze state. It's a necessary one in most cases, but we need to be in the freeze, but there's a process of coming out of freeze. And then now we're just waking up to this third kind of trauma, which is unseen in most cases if you're in a position of power. So systemic racism is a kind of a trauma that is sort of like permeating everything. So um, if you think about a record on a record player going around, a trauma is like a scratch in the record. So when the record's going around, oh, it's, it scratches, and then, oh, it scratches again, and then it scratches again. And it'll keep scratching at the same place until that scratch is, I don't actually know how you do this, but uh, I was going to say ironed out, but smoothed out somehow. And the process of smoothing that out is completing earlier cycles. So in a very simple way, it's like if you were, strapped down or held down that your body would be able to make the movement that it couldn't make then if you were in a freeze because you were giving birth and you had anesthesia and then you were a little afraid of the doctor so you couldn't say what you wanted to say then in present time you could say those things that you couldn't say then Um, we don't always have to go back to earlier experiences to repair them in fact that would be almost impossible. Um, because if you think about when we're babies, we're handled in all kinds of ways that might not be our first choice. Um, but our caretakers are usually doing the best that they can. So, um, any kind of movement that's incomplete or gesture, um, that's incomplete can stick in our system as residue. And then instead of relating to the present moment, fresh and arriving in that moment, we're relating to the present moment with whatever it is that that record scratch that's playing. Right. Um, I definitely want to talk about this trauma specific to, I would say birth and like some of the ways that you see this panning out in a way that maybe the culture at large doesn't. But before we do that, just because I haven't totally uh, expanded upon polyvagal theory for my audience. I would love if you could, I know it's super broad, but give an overview of that. Um, and, and I think specifically too, there is something I remember you saying that I feel like we've got this kind of self-punishing or shameful perspective around responses like fight, flight, freeze, fawn. Um, and I really loved how you kind of talked about like, these are protective mechanisms, so like our body is doing what it needs to survive. Um, so anyway, I'll let you kind of expand upon that. But I thought that was an interesting, less like just more integrated way to look at it. Yes. So let's see where to start. Oh, most of us 
and you can tell me if I'm wrong because I think you're a little younger than me, but most of us learned in high school and when we're talking about the autonomic nervous system, we learned that the sympathetic nervous system is fight or flight and the parasympathetic is rest or digest. Is that what you learned? Okay. So that's a binary system and it sounds like only one or the other is happening. Like either you're in fight or flight and that's become part of the vernacular. People will say, I'm fight, I'm so fight or flight. Yeah. Or you're in rest and digest. So in 1995, Stephen Porges put forth some revolutionary research that was like, actually, the autonomic nervous system is way more complex than this. And there's a whole other level of the nervous system that's not even included in the two that I just shared. I teach a whole class on this that's six weeks. So I'm going to do my best to give you like a five to ten minute quick and dirty here. Um, so when we're talking about the nervous system, we're talking about nerves. This is not imaginary. These nerves live in our body, cranial nerve five, cranial nerve seven. I don't have them memorized about which cranial nerves are relating to which of the systems, uh, but you can look that up very easily if you're, if you nerd out on actual nerves, but these are nerves that come from the brain down the spinal column and, and innervate meaning energize and send electrical impulses to different parts of our system. System meaning organs and like eyes, nose, mouth, ears, heart, guts, and sometimes sex organs. So what polyvagal theory did was number one, it showed us that this is a mix. When we say sympathetic fight or flight, we're talking about the sympathetic system under threat. When we say parasympathetic, rest or digest, we're talking about parasympathetic in safety. So each of the parts of the nervous system are going to have a way that they are when they're in safety and a way that they are when they're under threat. So if we were only comparing under threat, then sympathetic would be fight or flight Parasympathetic would be freeze or collapse. But the next layer is that we're talking here about parasympathetic dorsal. Dorsal means the back of your body. An animal like a dolphin has a dorsal fin. So we're talking back of the head, back of the neck, back of the shoulders, kidneys, down the back to the sacrum. There's a whole other branch of the parasympathetic system called the social nervous system. That's the ventral vagal. So it's still the vagal. It's still polyvagal. Poly means many. Vagal, vagus nerve, many branches of the vagus nerve. So in the ventral vagal system, there is also threat response. There is also the ventral vagal in safety. Okay, are we good so far? Because it's a lot of terms and it's (laughs) a lot. You following? Yes. Okay. So... We're, as animals, you know, this is something that's, I guess, a little bit controversial, but we're always scanning for safety. We're scanning to know, is this person trustworthy? Is this place trustworthy? Is this food okay to eat? Uh, It's just part of how we're interpreting our environment. The way that this cascade of the nervous system works is actually phylogenetic. So it's about how it evolutionarily um, stacked. 
So the oldest system is the parasympathetic dorsal, the one where the freeze and collapse occurs. That's the oldest evolutionarily. Then comes the sympathetic. Then comes the parasympathetic ventral vagal. So the first thing that we're going to do, so the, the social nervous system evolved from maternal bonding. So it evolved from nursing, from how, uh, and it's primarily mammals, how we look at each other. So if a mother is nursing, then she's likely to look about 18 inches. And you're looking, babies learn how to feel. They learn, it's called mirroring, because the mother is mirroring to them how they are, what their emotions are, if they're distressed, if they're happy. Um, and they're learning that through subtle movements in the face. It's why it's so disconcerting for us in the U.S. culture to not have to wear masks because we can't actually read those subtle facial cues. We can only read around the eyes. And normally we would be reading the whole face to tell us if this person was kind or, you know, safe. So because the social nervous system, and this is particular to me, so I want to separate out what's polyvagal theory according to Stephen Porges and what is my contribution to this work. Uh, when we're scanning facial expressions, mostly what people hear about in polyvagal theory is that there's a ladder. Have you heard about this ladder? Yes, but okay. So this, this ladder, so I diverge a little bit from the ladder perspective, but the ladder is like, you want to be in social ventral vagal. So that's where you feel warm and connected and you feel like you belong and you feel safe relationally. And so when people work with the ladder, they want to know, well, are you in fight? Are you in flight? Are you in freeze? Or are you in the ding, 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 green light, warm and connected? My perspective is that every single branch has a way that it is when it's safe and when it's under threat. So when we are safe in the social nervous system, we have that sense of belonging. You might feel a warmth come up through your chest. Your cheeks might flush. Uh, you'll probably smile. Um, you feel like these are my people. Um, I, can, I can be different, but I can be different and still belong. Mm -hmm. I don't have to be like everyone else to belong. It's okay for me to have divergent opinions uh, and still be a part of this group. When we feel under threat, one of the responses that you named is fawning. I, because of estrogen, so most women have more estrogen than most men. It's about an 80%. If you're going to Venn diagram it, there's like a 20% overlap. Estrogen is a bonding hormone. Estrogen is what makes us care about how other people are feeling and be extra attuned. That's why there's more estrogen when we breastfeed and um, we're primed for that relationality. When we're under threat, fawning means that we approximate to our threat. So that looks like being nice, being polite. It can look like being deferent, um, going back to somebody who's formerly harmed you. Um, and so this is one where there often lives a lot of shame 
because people say, well, like, well, if you, if it was really that bad, why did you go back to that job? Or if it was really that bad, why did you go back to that partner? It's a physiological response because if we know where the threat is, it's less threatening than if it's just out at large. And as women, we've learned that if, that being nice and being polite and, and diminishing our needs can often keep us more safe. I've added one other response to that, which I call fitting in. Hmm. So animals camouflage, both predator and prey camouflage so that they can't be seen. And if you can't be seen, then you can't be attacked. And so a lot of people, including women, stay in this fitting in where they don't want to say how they really feel or what they really think because it's safer to fit in and they exchange fitting in for belonging. Right. Yeah. I love what, uh, Gabor Mate always talks about that. We have the two needs for authenticity and belonging, but when we have to choose one, we often choose belonging, which I can certainly, um, relate to. And I feel like even though we're choosing that one thing to feel safe, there has to be um, a negative effect, obviously, on um, suppressing that individuation and authenticity piece as well, right? Yeah, because you're turning it inward, right? You're sacrificing. You're sacrificing what you know to be true or your artistic expression because you've, you've learned that, for instance, maybe in your family, and, and this, I mean, it goes across all topics. It can go, like, if we just take money, um, a lot of people feel shame because they don't earn as much money as the other people in their family, or they feel shame that, oh, what would happen if I did earn more than everyone else? Like, right. are, then I'm going to, am I still going to belong? Am I still, am I going to be rejected? Um, you know, there's so, it could be your sexuality. Like what happens if I, it could be the way you dress. What, I, if I dress this way, what does that mean about me? And what are other people going to think? And can I tolerate that? Right. Can I, can I tolerate the amount of uh, reflection that I'm going to get back? Right. So that's the social nervous system, and that's the one that really came forward in polyvagal theory, and it influenced many different things, including how people um, approach therapy. Because if you approach therapy, it's also generally always been a relational process. In fact, it's been about attachment repair. But realizing like, oh, if people are going to be trauma therapists and someone's going to come in and just wants to work on a certain trauma, that just diving right into the trauma might not actually help because first we have to be able to establish a rapport and establish a felt sense of safety. We can think we're safe and our body can be telling us something else. Right. Yeah. And I'd love to talk about that split between the body and the mind, as I mentioned before we started recording, I think the very first thing that I heard you talk about that just resonated so deeply and made so much sense was talking about C-sections. And I was born of a C-section, and I feel like throughout my life struggled with a lot of health issues, gut issues, um, and through all of that kind of came to this place where I recognized that potentially being born uh, from a C-section may have played a role in that. And I never had thought about it from my mother's perspective, um, how not having a child go through, you know, 
the vagina <laughs> is not sending the signal uh, to her body that she's actually given birth in a way. And what that can mean for mothers who suffer from postpartum depression, that this isn't like a psychological issue in and of itself, that it's being triggered by the body is really confused. Um, so I'm sure there are so many different things as far as birth is concerned, where uh, mothers and babies are being traumatized. But um, I'd love maybe just selfishly, if you could talk a little bit more about that whole C-section thing, because I think um, it applies to so many of us. Mm -hmm. I'll definitely, I, I'm not really finished with the polyvagal theory. Oh, you you're can not. imagine that. I know <laughs> it's like, it's very complex, but just to, just to map it out and then I'll circle back. Yeah, yeah. So after the social nervous system, our sympathetic nervous system, if we're not under threat is not a fight or flight. It's what motivates us. It's what mobilizes us. It's what wakes us up in the morning. It's what it's our active phase. So we really need our sympathetic nervous system and our parasympathetic nervous system is what allows us to slow down to rest. Sphincter dilation happens in parasympathetic. It's more of a hibernation phase. And so when a lot of times when people are talking about regulating the nervous system, they're talking about all these things to do to relax, you know, like, um, whatever I can't think of go to the sauna and take long exhalations and do yoga but in fact as I was mentioning earlier what what I found with many of the people that I work with is they need to learn how to tolerate sympathetic activation and we need to move up from the freeze response into a healthy fight response because a healthy fight response is a healthy aggression power learning how to use anger and um directed outward. So things like gut issues, things like autoimmune problems, oftentimes is the sympathetic nervous system, those fight responses turned inward, right? Because the body's um, not figuring out how to deal with that internally. So I've just found that a lot of the people that I work with tend towards a parasympathetic response. Mm. And when we can establish gently and in a you know step-by-step -step way, moving towards healthier fight responses for most women. That's where I've seen the most amount of healing. How that relates to birth and cesareans are that, um, so another sort of contribution, you know, a lot of trauma theory was put out there by men and, um, in everything, medicine, fitness, diets, everything is researched on men and really mostly designed by men. And then women try it out like, Oh yeah, paleo keto, like doesn't matter that I'm menstruating. Let's just try this anyway. Um, I can do anything a man can do and I can do it better. So like maybe I'll try climbing a mountain while I'm pregnant or, you know, whatever, like this sort of ethos that we, at least I was raised with that. I don't, I shouldn't let my woman femaleness stand in my way. Um, so we have many more cycles as women because we have our most women have a monthly cycle for a period of time. And then we many times have pregnancies that either miscarry on their own or that we choose to terminate. And then we have more gynecological visits and it's the body. So anything that happens in the pelvis is going to relate to other things that happen in the pelvis. And then with birth itself, 
there's a lot more ways that that is interrupted. And all of those things register as incomplete cycles, as skips on the record. So when I was working with a lot of women, sometimes they would come in and they would think they were having a sexual problem. But when we would map it back, it was based, like, say, I worked with one woman who had vulvodynia, which is like inflammation of the vulva. It related back to an abortion she had had where she she wanted it, but she felt very unsupported at the time. And... Um, her body went into a freeze state during the procedure. So when we could thaw out the freeze state, it shifted the inflammation in the tissue. Um, so a cesarean is a surgery. Some people, this, so this is where we get into PC land because no one wants to hurt anyone's feelings. And so they don't want anyone to feel bad who's had a cesarean or been a cesarean birth. I don't think anyone should feel bad. I just think people need to know what's happening physiologically because it impacts you. And then it's less confusing if you just know what's going on. Mm -hmm. So a surgery isn't in uh, bodies aren't used to surgeries, right? So a surgery in in and of itself, it can be less traumatic or more traumatic and you can prepare yourself for it. But there is, there are cuts in the tissue, and oftentimes I've worked on tons of cesareans and cesarean scars. I have worked on also a lot of vaginal tears. I'm, I'm a sexological body worker, so I do hands-on work. So I actually work in pelvises, and I work on the tissue. <clears throat> um, from the baby's point of view, there's a reason that we go through all the compression and the contractions. And there's a reason that our head is getting compressed and primed because those bones are mobile in our cranium. And as we're in the uterus and we're getting contractions and we're getting squeezed through, that's priming the valve system in our body. There's also primary reflexes. So we have a reflex, an extension reflex when we come up and under the pubic bone. So some people who are born cesarean, their parent, their mom did go through labor, and then some people are scheduled cesareans and they never had labor. So ideally you would you would experience some labor because also it's the baby that sets labor into motion. It's the baby that decides when to be born. So from a mother's point of view, the scar would be a place to start. Many women are averse to their scar, don't want to touch. Some of some scar tissue is still painful. Sometimes there's adhesions in the scar tissue. And scars are physical artifacts of trauma. So it's a good starting place if you want to start unwinding that is you can use castor oil packs, you can use heat, and just doing gentle self-massage on the scar. Um, when I've done this before, I've had women contract Um, I've had women do a full-on birth scenario, even 28 years later, the thing that their body could never do at the time. From the baby's point of view, um, a lot of babies who haven't um, been born vaginally, you can put two fingers on their feet and one one hand on their head, and a lot of times they'll go into that reflex of pushing, pushing Mm -hmm. against their feet and their Head And they will oftentimes really like head compression. Uh, so those are some thoughts. I, I did a rebirthing training last year. Uh, I was delivered from forceps. And I 
always kind of poo-pooed this idea that we could actually go back to our own birth. I thought it was a little bullshit. And I was also kind of like, is that really necessary? Because people in the birth world think everything. Like, if you talk to someone in rebirthing, they'd be like, you were delivered cesarean. How do you feel about traffic? You probably don't like being in tight spaces, do you? You know, and it was like, there'll be like so many things that are assumptive about that. You have a hard time with time. Do you like control? You know, um, I think we're all like so complex. So I think there's so many ways that we are and there's so many things that influence us. That being said, I went back to my own birth. Um, my body did it. I, I had in mind that, you know, that would be interesting, but there's no way you can force that to happen. And over a series of about four months, I was getting closer. I got back to like a three and four month old stage, uh, nonverbal memory. And I even talked to my mom from that place of like what I would have said to her if I could have talked at that mm -hmm. time, which for me was, I do want you to take care of me. I do want you to feed me. Um, I do want to nurse because I was always told I was really hard to nurse and, um, like breastfeeding was just a, a big problem. And I was saying like, I want you to take care of me, but you don't seem to know how to take care of me, but mm -hmm. I want you to. And then I went back to my birth, um, during a rebirthing session and my body did a lot of movements that clearly it was trying to do at the time or wasn't able to. And then I had a lot of, um, visceral sensations mostly about time and, and saying over and over, I know how to do this. I just need more time. I know how to do this. I need more time. And for me, I've had a feeling in my life of being kind of pushed and pulled at the same time because mm -hmm. I was, I was delivered at 42 weeks. So I was two weeks quote unquote late or past due. And then I was pulled out with forceps. So I didn't get all the time I needed to take my time, but then I skipped a grade in school and I was always young and I was always, you know, like kind of pushed ahead, like you're advanced or this. And so I had this feeling of like, I, I'm not on my own timing. And that training was really reparative for me because even the format of the training, you didn't have to show up if you didn't want to. And I've always been a very conscientious student and perfect. I was a perfectionist a long time ago. I haven't been a perfectionist for a while, but the feeling that I could just be on my own rhythm and, and no one was going to penalize me for it or treat me differently or, um, make any assumptions about me that I would just be received every time I came to the group, no matter how much I participated was very reparative for that birth scenario where I felt like I just need more time and I know how to I know how to birth myself. And then, you know, at three years old, like I'm already reading and I'm already writing and like, go faster, go faster. So, uh, I do think that there is a lot for us in our birth experiences, but I also don't think that's the only thing. And I've done a lot of healing work over the years of all different varieties and forms. So I think that all of that somatic work that I had done prior led me to a place where I could experience that. Right. But I do feel that if we want to think about changing the world and changing the world in the way that I see it is where um, all voices and bodies are valued and our planet is valued, 
that we would do well to treat mothers and babies much better than we do. And we would have many more things in place where women and babies were taken care of. And that's why I wrote my first book, which is called The Fourth Trimester. Uh, But in my own personal activism, I direct my resources towards black and brown birth centers and midwives, because to me, that's sort of the nexus. Like if we bring people into the world in a humanized way, we continue in that way. When we anesthetize people, when we, um, you know, put every, when we hospitalize something that's actually a life event and isn't an emergency, we're starting off from a perspective of fear and mitigation of error rather than, uh, an elation or an elevation of life. Right. Yeah. It's fascinating. You said that thing about pressure on the head, because I find it to one of the most comforting things to me is to have someone's hand on my forehead. And I would sort of go around asking everyone, like, is this, is this the most comforting thing for you too? Like (laughs) I couldn't understand why like that was so just felt so safe and so secure. So thank you for that little tidbit. Mm. Um, I want to expand upon what uh, you mentioned and what I feel like I try to talk about on the podcast a lot is there's this really unfortunate taboo around talking about the difference between uh, male and female bodies. And obviously like lots, I mean, there's so much that I can talk about in relation to that, but I feel, and I understand why that for so long, um, you know, what could maybe be defined as like masculine power was the only type of power we were familiar with or that we understood or that was valuable. And I feel like we lost touch with what it means to be empowered in a feminine sense. And I'm talking, I think, more, I mean, both energetically, obviously, but also the difference of our bodies. Like it was interesting when you talked about the paleo and keto thing, because as one of the methods that I tried to use to heal a lot of my health issues was going on a paleo diet. And I feel like it solved some gut issues maybe, but my hormones got so fucked up, um, over the course of a decade. And Mm. I felt like what I needed to do was continue being more strict about that. And then realized like, once I got better in touch with my actual body and what I was feeling personally, it was hard to deny that like actually eating more carbs, I feel better. Uh, and I'm not really sure why, and this isn't talked about. And, um, I'm curious how you distinguish that in your work around really teaching women about their own specific physiology. Um, but then also, uh, semi-related, like what it, what feminine power actually looks like or feels like. Yeah, it's really layered conversation and the way that I see masculine and feminine is through the lens mostly of Chinese medicine where they're in relationship to each other. And so therefore the feminine and the masculine live in every kind of body, no matter what kind of gender orientation someone has. Mm. In my work, I've worked primarily with women in female bodies and I, as I mentioned, I do work in with people's reproductive anatomy and we're in such a bizarre moment where 
you know, it's only been like 20 years that clitoral anatomy has even been complete in textbooks, right? So for, for at least a good 50 or 60 years, and, and we're not even close to getting women good care in birth. I mean, we're not even, it's like a 33% cesarean rate, even though the World Health Organization says 12% um, would be accurate. So we're like 20% off in that major cities like New York, 50%. Um, and it's not, again, it's not cesareans equals bad. It's just that that's not a physio, like those are just, those are just inappropriate outcomes for like what bodies need. Right. And, you know, lately people have been asking me, cause I teach this class, activate your inner Jaguar. And they're like, well, are people of all genders welcome? And this and that. And it's like, well, yeah, people of all genders are welcome, but it's a woman centered environment with women centered language. So just like I have another class that I have a black teacher teaching who she's teaching like the black version of activate your inner Jaguar in her class. It's a black centered environment where non BIPOC people are welcome. And that's somehow a woman centered environment has now become controversial, not only because like in New York where the wing, which was an intersectional feminist workspace, um, was taken to court so that men could come there based on discrimination laws that we fought for so that there couldn't be male only places. Right. So we've got all of these weird power dynamics and reversals happening. Uh, I'm not sure we know what feminine power looks like. How can we know that when we have, I mean, I know supposedly 5,000 years ago, there were like a proliferation of matriarchal societies, but at this point, that's like anthropological speculation. We don't have a felt sense because so rarely are we in any kind of space where the female body is not derivative. So I I don't know if we know that because even even a definition is going to be in response to one being having more power or better. Right. And as far as bodies are concerned, I mean, this basically like 10 minutes after I gave birth, my worldview fell apart because I was just like, this is fucking bullshit. Like, how did anyone ever convince me that there's even any, anything similar between women and men? Like, why did I even think that like there was like equality, like equality is something so different from sameness. Yeah. And I think that we, uh, as a whole culture, we're being asked to evolve to our most evolved social nervous system. But right now we've pendulated from like collective denial and freeze. And now we're in like moral outrage and indignation. And hopefully eventually we'll cycle up to a place where we can be different and, and we can have our homogenous groups because there is a lot that we need within those homogenous groupings. We need to be with people who are like us. And it's just a felt sense thing. It feels different to be in a room with all women than it does with a room with all men. And fundamentally our biology perceives it. People say, well, you know, um, why, why can we, what is it that can tell if somebody, 
and I'm not saying I can tell every single person's sexual orientation, or I can tell every single person, but in general, it's, it's just like we, we perceive almost immediately if somebody has some kind of a disability, our biology is filtering it, filtering that, but then we make it moral and we feel bad about ourselves for it, or we tell ourselves, well, we shouldn't notice that, or, or it shouldn't, we shouldn't, what we should feel bad about if, is if we act like fucking assholes because of those things. But, but the fact that we're sorting, you know, I taught a class and there were three people that were outside the binary in the class in a group of 30 people. And I was messing up the pronouns right and left because when I was teaching a big group of people, my biology is sorting. My, my brain is not sorting. And so to jump back and forth to my brain of like using a pronoun that's totally new and different and not everybody had the same pronoun, that's a lot of work to be in a flow and teaching and then be jumping up to neocortex like repetitively to try to make sure that I'm getting the pronouns right. And then, and then to know that I'm, I'm being judged and I'm being labeled as somebody who doesn't care and is like power tripping because I'm actually my, it's as if those, the, the people who are requesting a new category. And again, if I'm one-on-one with someone and they ask me to call them anything like, yes, but in terms of a sorting mechanism, someone's presenting like a woman. So look, has female genitals and looks like a woman, but wants different pronouns used. That's going to trip me up a lot before there's new programming that goes to the thing that's overriding the bio, the biological sorting that we're doing by smell that we're doing in all kinds of ways that I actually don't even understand, but I just know to be true from how I walk around in the world. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I don't even know what word to use, like severely disappointing to me because I feel like, I mean, this to me gets into just sort of like a lack of patience and empathy in general, like grouping in cancel culture or grouping in like shaming and anger as a strategy for constructive change. Like I do feel like if I were going to say there was how to define feminine power, like it would be a lot more empathetic and vulnerable and intuitive and quiet in a sense. And yet it feels nearly impossible to embody any of those things in a safe way in Mm. the culture and climate that we have, you know? I feel like there's just so many kinds of the feminine though. Cause to me, feminine power, the way that I came to the Jaguar work was because I was in a situation, I'm a single mom and my daughter was about five and she was, somebody gave me the reflection that she was going to turn into an authoritarian child. And they were like, I know this is hard for you to hear, but like she is in the authoritative role. And because it was just the two of us and I'm, I tend to have a more flexible personality. I hadn't really realized how much what she wanted was what was happening. And then when we were in a group of people, there were like four people who wanted, I don't remember what it was, but like four people wanted sushi and one wanted pizza And she basically won out and convinced all the other people um, or they acquiesced, however you want to look at it. But the Jaguar work was Jaguar moms teach their cubs to hunt. It's not the dads. 
The dads aren't even around. And so basically my therapist at the time was like, I felt I was feeling sorry for myself because I wanted to be that empathetic. And I actually tend towards these, those qualities just anyway. I'm a very watery, um, softer in, in general, it's harder for me to be in the sympathetic side of my nervous system. It was, it was learning to embody the huntress, which is also, which is also feminine, right? So that's Diana. Like, She's looking at the animal and drawing the arrow at the same time. And she's known to be, she's the the lover of the animals in the forest and she's the hunter. So she's both. Um, But I agree that shaming is, um, it has a very narrow function. And if we're really looking at wide scale behavior change, that's not likely to be what is going to do it. So, um, I'm, essentially, if our system is in a threatened state in fight or flight and we approach someone else like that, um, it's, it's more likely that that's the response that we're going to get. So, um, as you're saying, if, if we could be in a social nervous system place where we're not under threat, the problem is the groups that haven't traditionally had power feel as if they're under threat most of the time. And so then that is, that's what sets the stage. Uh, but the purpose of my work and what I'm trying to help as many people understand as I can is that our biology and our physiology are running on a completely different track than our morals and our ideology. And that we've been trained to think that it's our morals and our ideology that are the important things, but actually our biology and our physiology demand respect and are often much more trustworthy than the ideologies and the stories that we build around how we should be or should feel or should do. Yeah. And I would imagine, I know we spoke about this a bit before we started recording that I do feel like there's a lot of sort of like, uh, maybe not myths, but, uh, ways that we talk about female empowerment, especially like having kids and having a job, having kids later in life, freezing your eggs, all these different things that I feel like we have this understanding from an ideological intellectual perspective is empowering, but maybe not aligned with how our bodies are set up and how our bodies work. And we're trying to like sidestep our biology in a way. Um, so I'd love to hear you talk about that more in depth than if there's any other way that you think our culture is just misleading us as far as what makes sense for our body. I think, I think it's misleading to, well, first of all, I, our biology for women, our biology is prime for reproduction from, you know, 18 to 35. And is it possible to have babies outside of that window? Absolutely. Is it optimal? No. And do I think that women who are 35 who have babies are bad? No. And do I think that people can stretch that? Yes. But what I'm talking about, again, is what you're mentioning is like, what is entail? integral to our bodies because I actually do believe that as a f- someone in a female body 
that I am more connected to the earth and the earth cycles and the cycles of the moon. And that what, what is happening is you autoimmune diseases. It's, it's far in a way affecting female bodies. It's like eight times as many. What we're seeing in the planet is playing itself out in women's reproductive health, endometriosis. Um, I mean, everything, every, I couldn't even, I didn't have any reproductive stuff before I had a baby. And then when I started doing this work, I just, I couldn't believe the amount of reproductive stuff that women are handling and dealing with. And that's why I'm really into vaginal steaming. And I, I funded a study about vaginal steaming. Um, but we, instead of, I mean, I don't, I actually, it's like, it really pisses me off. Why have we decided that the way that a male trajectory, career trajectory works is, is what we should do as women so that we can earn more status because we're going towards that kind of masculine power and then sacrifice so that basically everyone I know, every woman I know who's working and, um, now has kids at home probably. And it's like, we just keep adding on roles and we haven't given up any roles. Everybody feels like they're doing so much and they're not doing any of it well. And that was before we even had a pandemic. And it's like, at what point are we going to adjust our, not only measures of success, but also our social structures so that we're taking care of mothers, not just at the time of birth, but ongoingly, because the, you know, the proverbial hearth is empty. Now maybe it's not because we're all, we all have to be at home, but there's so many repercussions. So when people ask me for help, like, will I help them figure out how to freeze their eggs? That's just a conversation I'm not interested in being in. I don't think, I think we live in the the most entitled country in the world. I'm, I'm humiliated actually by United States of Americans entitlement and that we just think we deserve everything. And that goes, that goes for children too. Like, why does every person deserve to have a kid? So why does every person deserve to freeze their eggs and, and then fight that the healthcare system should be paying for that? And I've known women who are in menopause and they're taking hormones to get out of menopause to have a baby. We don't know anything about, I mean, the Western medical healthcare system, if you want to choose one thing it knows nothing about, endocrine system. We don't know shit about hormones. Chinese medicine knows a little bit more. That's because they think it's 10 times harder to treat women than men. Why? Because they understand the complexity of the women's reproductive system. So they actually pay that much attention to it. So for the people listening, I would just say rather than try to adjust your biology and think about, you know, I hear a lot of talk about extended reproduction, change how you're thinking about the way that you're structuring your life. And I think that's also because we've changed so much about what we think relationship is about. And so we want to like know ourselves really well before we get in a relationship. And as someone who knows herself really well, I'll tell you what, it's harder to get in a relationship when you know yourself really well. You know, you, you develop, the more you develop your identity, the more you develop your ego, the harder it is to soften around those things and to merge that, kind of thing. So if you're young enough that you're still deciding, like it's, it's from a family perspective, 
you know, and I don't know, maybe people who are listening are like, you know, they're going to just rewrite all the rules and do things completely differently, which I sort of did without even wanting to do it. I didn't really want to do it. I would have preferred to do it the way that it usually happens. Uh, and certainly we're being asked to be way more creative about structures because um, that's what this period of time is about. Like the way we've been doing things is just on the way out. But it's, I've never known anyone to be disappointed by really listening more to what their body's telling them. Right. Our bodies usually have a slower pace than our minds. Our minds want us to be farther along than we are. Our bodies think we should, our minds think we should get over stuff. Just get over it. Our, our minds think other people have it so much worse. Um, and it's like, all those things are true, but your body experience is still going to be there. And until you attend to it, it's just going to knock on your door louder and louder. And that record skip is going to get louder and louder and louder until there's some attention to it. Yeah. Um, I kind of want to ask you about birth control. Okay. Um, which I'm sure, obviously, there are so many different types. I was on hormonal birth control from 16 to 21. And at the time when I was on it, felt fine. I, I felt like I never had any side effects. Like, I was totally okay. And then I went off of it thinking, like, maybe that's not the best thing for my body. I, like, eat well and eat clean. And, like, I'm putting these thing, this thing into my body. Maybe that's not the best thing to be doing. And I went off of it. I had no idea that I should have, like went off of it strategically or helped my body wean off of it. And then at the exact same time as when I started a paleo diet. And I feel like those two things really fucked me up a lot. And I, I, uh, I spent the next 10 years like swearing that I would never take any kind of birth control ever again. And eventually, um, and wasn't fully healed either by the time I made that decision. And I eventually got a copper IUD and I feel like, I'm pretty aware of like what the downside or negative aspect of that was. But interestingly, from the moment I wasn't getting my period when I got the IUD, I started getting my period again and like all of my hormonal issues improved. When you and got I don't, the IUD? I, I did. Um, wow, cool. And I, and I don't know if that's, of course, I feel like my whole life is this weird thing where like emotionally um, and in my relationships and my, yeah, my emotional health transitions at the same time that I transition something in my physical body. So it's always quite challenging to delineate between like, what was the physical change versus mm -hmm. the external change. Um, but anyway, I'm just curious what your thoughts are about it. Um, and wondering if you feel like one way or that it's kind of a more nuanced perspective, or if you think that the conventional wisdom around these things is stunted in any way. Well, birth control is way over-prescribed, right? Yeah. So birth control is prescribed for many, 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 many things that are not reproductive, like that's not just contraception. So um, it's a bit of a, it, it's like, it's like antidepressants. You can go in for a lot of things and end up on antidepressants. Right. So it's, um, I feel really strongly I'm caring for uh, my own daughter who's 13 and her best friend. Her best friend was put on birth control at nine years old. Um, I feel really strongly about medicating kids. Um, I, 
it's a good sign if you're what you're on, you're not feeling a lot of symptoms. But what I see is women who are feeling a lot of symptoms, but are their mind is telling them they're not, or their doctor's telling them they're not. So they're mm-hmm. saying, you know what? I feel like my body's trying to push this IUD out. I'm like, well, then it is. If that's what you feel like is happening, that's what's happening. But like if, but my doctor said that's not possible. And my doctor said this, but if you feel like that's what's happening, it is. I feel like this birth control is making me really da 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 da. It is, um, you know, and people always say the same thing about antidepressants and birth control. Well, it's a really low dose. It's this and that. It doesn't matter. It's <clears throat> there's impacts for all of it. I think birth control, like the whole concept, contraception in general, is just very private and personal and people have to choose the thing that they know that they can do. Right. Because it's kind of like the best of the worst choices. There's not really a great choice. Um, I'm really pro, um, fam fertility awareness method because it gets you closer to yourself. Um, but I, I'm not judging anyone for what, what they choose. I just know that a lot of, I've heard women say they get, they go on the pill because, um, they did it as a gift to their partner so their partner wouldn't have to wear a condom or they went on the pill because a lot of people are on it because it's a rite of passage. Their moms think they're really progressive by letting their 15-year-old daughters go on birth control even if they're not sexually active. Um, so I, this once again falls into a category of we don't know the but the thing is we do we do, we do have studies we have a lot of studies on birth control and and there's a great podcast called Fertility Friday that's all about this um but one of the things i know for sure is that there are longitudinal studies showing direct correlations between girls between 14 and 17 on birth control and increased rates of depression so I and mean, we do have some data on some of this stuff. But, you know, I work with a lot of people who are on birth control for 15 years and then their libido, they've never experienced their actual drive because their drive was so impacted by the medication that they were on. Right. Yeah. It's so complicated too. I remember, I'm probably going to screw up the details of this, but looking back at like former hunter-gatherer societies are just looking at those that exist now and how much more infrequently they're menstruating because they're often continuing to have children um, and how women in Western, more Western cultures are like menstruating a lot more um, and how that kind of affects uh, our, our hormones and how we feel as well. That like maybe it isn't as natural um, for women to be constantly menstruating, but like never having kids, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. which I found to be like a really interesting perspective about it yeah i've heard of that i've heard that too i think um lisa the host of the fertility friday i think she talks about that because you know there's like there's so many theories about it but i think it's more like less i mean if we're designed like this then it's not just a mistake that's my belief but it's like um from the beginning of time there's not just a mistake and also we would it would be environmental right like we we know that the pill is terrible for the environment we're we're urinating estrogen into our water supply that's creating more 
endogenous and exogenous estrogen in our system. So most men have too much estrogen as well. And that's just going to disproportionately impact people depending on how much fat storage they have in their body and their nervous system predisposition. So if you have connective tissue that predisposes you to be more parasympathetic, it's harder for your system to flush through things. Um, your metabolism is usually a little bit slower. If you're more on the sympathetic side of things, then maybe you can handle um, and process things. But it, that just depends so much system to system. And our systems in general are under so much stress, unlike they've ever been, in, besides, a, besides a pandemic, which is extremely stressful. But if you look at what a system, this, the kind of stresses, and I'm not talking about, you know, of course, there was always natural disasters. There were always, like, big things happening. But if you just think about eating, what did it take to eat 100 years ago and what it takes now? You want to eat some yogurt? Well, would you like coconut, almond, cashew, cow, whole fat, non-fat, fermented? I mean, the yogurt section is like as big as probably (laughs) all the food that there was to eat, you know? (laughs) So all of those choices register as stress for our system. Right. Um. Before we wrap up, do you have a, a minute or two more? Mm-hmm. I don't want to take too much of your time, but I'd love to talk about motherhood more broadly, and I feel like we've touched on it a bit, especially what you were talking about in terms of uh, female bodies being a lot more connected with the earth. Uh, I got I did an astrology reading. I think it was the first one I ever had many years ago, and uh, the woman who gave me the reading said something about how she thought it might be really healing for me to have kids or be a mom. And then she said something like, but maybe not necessarily have kids just have and be in a, like be in a motherly role. And that maybe that also, because, you know, uh, femininity is so tied into the earth and the planet that maybe that could even look like taking care of the earth in a way. Um, and then later in life, uh, I did a thing on my podcast where I had people submit questions and someone wrote in and for me to answer on the show and someone wrote in and said, do you want to be a mother? And it was just this weird clicking into place for me where I realized like I could answer yes to that question without answering yes to the question of, do you want to have kids? And that felt so unbelievably freeing to me because I feel like prior to that, I thought the only way to be a mother was to like have children of my own. Um, And my life is very much set up toward wanting to set up a community with a lot of my friends and help raise their kids. And I love kids and I have a really high tolerance for kids. Um, Like I often want to hang out with kids more than adults in a setting like that. So it was just like, wow, I could feel like I could touch more children in a way if I didn't have my own kids and I could help other people raise theirs. Um, So I'm curious just broadly, like if you talk about motherhood in that sort of more um, uh, existing outside of, of actually like birthing children. I don't talk a lot about it just because my own path shifted so much when I became a physical mother, when I birthed a child from my body. Uh, I certainly think that the world needs more aunties and, uh, you know, birth is interesting because you know, now I've written a couple of books and writing books is really hard. And sometimes you, people will make analogies about it. Well, yeah, you're birthing this creative project or you're birthing this book. Yeah. And people do that. The same thing with doulaing. Oh, well, you're like a doula or you're a midwife of the soul or you're a doula of this. 
and I appreciate those metaphors and I absolutely agree. Like I let, I could feel that in my system when you, someone said, do you want to be a mother? And you could say yes, but that didn't have to mean that you were going to birth children or adopt them or whatever. And there's something very particular to growing a human in your body and pushing them out of your body. It's, it's unlike the other, because I was, and in fact, I was shocked because I was always a great babysitter and loved kids and I'm the oldest and I have tons of cousins. And so I thought this thing, this whole motherhood thing, this is going to be a piece of cake. Like I was like, I got this, like the birth might be hard. It's probably going to be hard, but like the motherhood, I had no idea. And so just from that perspective of knowing what it actually feels like, and also to be around a a lot of other women who have chosen not to have children. It's easy to tell who are the women who have chosen not to have children, but still are awake to that mother archetype and those who are asleep to it or just disinterested in it. Mm. Uh, So I'd say both, you know, but as far as I don't talk a lot about it just because it, it was, I always knew I wanted to be a mom and I, that was like the one thing I wanted more than anything else. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for having this conversation with me. Um, Before we wrap up, if you could tell everyone where they can find you and learn more about the work that you do. And then I ask everyone uh, who I have on the show if they could recommend a book to the audience that was either really meaningful for you in your life or somehow relates to this conversation. And it's fine if you want to pick more than one. Um, So my website is magamama.com, M-A-G-A-M-A-M-A.com. if you go to magmama.com slash Jaguar, you can see more about the Activate Your Inner Jaguar course. I love books. Um, what would be a book that I would recommend? Uh, well, if, if you want to learn more about female sexuality, then I would re- recommend Women's Anatomy of Arousal by Sherry Winston. And I would recommend that no matter your gender, um, because whether you like being with women or you are a woman, um, or you just are a human, uh, I think it's sort of should be compulsory education. If I had more time, my cert public service would be, um, <laughs> Xeroxing a chapter of that and leaving it in cafes all over town. Uh, <laughs> and then, my book, but my book's not coming out till next year, but it's called The Call of the Wild, How We Heal Trauma, Awaken Our Power, and Use It for Good. Amazing. Thank you so much again. This was fun and enlightening. So I appreciate it. Thank you. Hello, everybody. Thank you for sticking around and listening to that episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Again, if you would like to support the podcast and get access to things like WhatsApp groups and book clubs, uh, go to patreon.com slash Anya Kotz. You can always also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, uh, scroll all the way down past all the episodes, and there's a spot there to leave some stars and a review. All very helpful, um, especially when you share episodes with your friends or just write me an email and let me know you're out there and give me some feedback about anything at all that you'd like to give me feedback on. Um, I am going to play you out today with a John Mayer song because who doesn't love John Mayer? I actually, I don't know if I've talked about this before, but John Mayer is like on the top of my list of guests to manifest for this podcast, but not maybe in the way that you might think. Um, 
I was always very intrigued by John Mayer after he did that thing where he talked about Jessica Simpson in like a very sexually explicit way. Uh, when I was, I don't know how old I was, but I must've been like 16 or 17 maybe. And I started a whole blog talking about like why we shouldn't punish John Mayer and how I wanted to have a conversation with him about what he said and feeling all sorts of confusing feelings about like, wait a second, I want someone to say that sex with me was like sexual napalm. Like that was a compliment that he gave her. Um, so from a very young age, I was um, very fascinated with talking about sexuality uh, in a sort of unconventional, non-PC kind of a way. And uh, I felt like it was a loss when John Mayer said all of that stuff, that he was, it was like one of the first cancels, cancellations of a person before that was trendy. Um, and it really bothered me. So I've always wanted to get I've always wanted to have a conversation with John Mayer on or off of a podcast um, in a way that isn't punishing or shaming, um, but more approaching it with curiosity and um, a lack of shame. All of that to say, <laughs> uh, today I'm going to play you out with a song of his called In the Blood. I think you will know why I chose it when you hear it. So enjoy. Sending you all love. May we survive and uh, flourish-ish, flourish-ish, in this weird, weird time. How much of my mother... Has my mother left in me? How much of my love will be insane to some degree? And what about this feeling that I'm never good enough? Will it wash out in the water or is it always in the blood? of my father am I destined to become will I dim the lights inside me just to satisfy someone will I let this woman kill me or do away with jealous love will it wash out in the water or is it always in the blood I can't feel the love I want I can't feel the love I need Brothers, do my brothers wanna be? Does a broken home become another broken family? Or will we be there for each other like nobody ever could? Will it wash out in the water or is it always in the blood? Out in the water, or 